Let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll make a few introductions and uh, say what we're going to try and do in the class, and then we'll just uh, get a start on this. Lord, we are grateful tonight for your word, for your grace to us, Lord, as we uh, take a look tonight and the rest of the semester at the uh, really what ties the scriptures together and uh, gives it unity, cohesiveness. Lord, I ask that you would give us uh, patience, uh, wisdom, uh, care as we uh, as we parse the pieces of, of your word in order to discover its whole. Lord, we ask that uh, uh, you'd give each one uh, here uh, understanding uh, as, as we uh, as we uh, embark on this and on this uh, exciting adventure here tonight. Lord, we thank you for your grace and love, and we ask that uh, we would be pleasing to you tonight in your name. Amen. Come on in, everyone. Uh, my name is Mark Snowberger. I, I guess everybody knows that. Uh, but uh, I teach up at the Detroit Baptist Seminary. I've been teaching there for seven years now. Um, was the librarian there for a whole bunch of years before that. So <clears throat> that's, uh, that's where I am. I uh, uh, took my degrees there and then my doctorate out at uh, Baptist Bible Seminary in Clark Summit. And some of you might be familiar with it. Yeah, so that's that's my introduction. I've got a wife and two kids. They probably come up in some sort of an illustration somewhere along the line. So uh, I'd like to, uh, if I can, take a minute just to try and learn, put names with faces here. I know some of your names, and some of you, I had panic moments because I couldn't remember your names even though I knew I should. So so if, if for my sake and for, and for everybody else's sake, uh, why don't we just review who everyone is here and... Uh, Maybe we can get to know each other a little bit better as the semester goes on. Start up here. <laughs> Andrea Campanola, Andrea and Tony, but Tony's working. He works afternoon, so. Okay. Susie Kerstetter. Susie. Carolyn Poole. Carolyn Poole. Ron Biggs. Ron Biggs. And you're passing us up, so we have to go to you. Sorry. <laughs> Your name? Uh, Bonnie Hopper. Bonnie Hopper. Okay. Back in the corner. Three. Yes. Teresa Weaver. Teresa Weaver. Leslie Franzel. Okay. Mark Hunter. Mark Hunter. Marion Smith. David Smith. Okay, David and Marion. West Dale. Okay. Okay. Emily Rapp. Rapp. You two are together, huh? We are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> last, last time you were here, she was working in the nursery. <laughs> Okay, I won't remember those names, but I will try. Hopefully by the end of the, uh, the semester we'll have each other's names down. And uh, Ed said he was going to get me a list of names, and uh, I'll try and jot all over it until I can remember some of them. Uh, so remind me a couple of times, I might, I might need it. My, my mind is, is weak. Okay, so... Introductions aside, we're going to be talking this semester about the topic of dispensationalism. Now, I don't know, I, I don't know many of you, actually. I know a few of you, maybe a third of you. Um, when you hear the word dispensationalism, give me, give, me, give me some sort of quick sense what you think, what comes to your mind, a word, a sentence, a line, or you can say, yeah, just nothing comes to mind. Uh, uh, anybody here? Uh, what, what do you Something think? to do with Catholicism is what I think. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I do. Different eras of, of the Bible and okay. Scripture. Okay, so eras of the Bible. 
Okay. Uh, uh, other uh, other themes that you think pop to your mind too? Can you come on. Yes. Eschatology. Okay. So you're thinking pre-trib rapture, eschatology. Okay. Anyone? Anyone else? Seven ages. Okay. Seven ages or eras? Yes. A clear distinction between Israel and the church. Ephesians two and three. Okay. Distinction between Israel and the church. Anything else that doesn't jump out? You say. How many of you say you know this word is is pretty much unfamiliar to me. I mean, maybe I've heard it here or there, but I really don't know what it, anybody in that category. Okay? Okay, good. Okay, so it gives me, a, gives me an idea of where we are. Uh, dispensationalism is a system of theology. It is a way of understanding how the Bible fits together, if I can, if I can put it in a nutshell. Uh, it fits, there are, there are others. Uh, there is the, the, probably the major other uh, approach is the reformed or the covenantal approach, uh, but there but there is actually lesser known uh, approaches to the scripture as well. How does it all tie together? Okay, so that's really what we're we're after tonight, and there's a lot involved with discovering that and trying to make that determination. So we're going to go through a number of topics as we go. I started here with with something of a, a discussion of misunderstandings about dispensationalism. Sometimes I come into a classroom and everybody knows something about dispensationalism, but the things they know aren't right. Okay. Uh, sometimes I get into a class, people say, I really don't know. Sometimes I have people who have something of a rudimentary or, or even a developed understanding of what dispensationalism is. And I see, I see I've got a mix here. Let me just start here with the misunderstandings uh, that are out there and just perhaps to set aside some perhaps false ideas or, or, or understandings that may have you know, crept into your thinking here. Dispensationalism, I start out by saying, is not a... I think you all have notes, right? Everybody have notes? Okay, good. Uh, Dispensationalism, I say, is not a really popular system of theology. Part of this, for for some, it's because of genuine disagreement with the basic premises and the ideas we're going to be talking about in the course of this this class. Uh, Basic premises about reading the Bible. How do we read the Bible? How does the Old Testament relate to the New? How do the people groups relate to one another? Uh, Israel and the church, uh, that, that those, those were, were raised. Uh, what do we do with the law? What do we do with that prophecy? What, what's the future going to hold? Okay, so some simply disagree with the basic premises that dispensationalism has about how the whole Bible fits together. Some have have disagreement with its understanding about the basic biblical storyline. Where is it going? Okay, we're going to talk about that. You know, if you were to reduce the message of the Bible to one word, I bet you we could have a number of different words that would pop up. You know, some of them would relate to one another, but some would probably be outright wrong uh, as, to, as to what the central message of the scripture is. We're going to talk about that. Uh, scripture, uh, some, some would uh, disagree with dispensationalism's distinction between Israel and the church. That was mentioned here. Uh, are Israel and the church the same thing? Uh, some systems of theology say effectively, yes, uh, dispensationalism, well, one of the basic premises of dispensationalism, they're not the same thing. They're both uh, representative uh, parts of the broad people of God, uh, but they're not the same thing. Uh, whether you want to call them peoples of God and put a sort of sharp wedge between them is part of the part of the debate we'll have. But uh, we're going to start out by saying they're not exactly the same thing, even though they have relationship with one another. 
Uh, some will disagree with the dispensational use of the law. What do we do with the law? I mean, you, you've, you've read portions of the law, and you say, now some of this just, it, it can't apply <laughs> today. Um, others, you say, yeah, I can do that. And, and, and then another part is like, okay, I have no idea what it means. Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. I, I've never been tempted to do that one. You know, it's just <laughs> never crossed my mind. Yeah, but but you, see, you see this and say, what do I do with the law? Well, dispensationalism has a very careful and nuanced approach to what it does with the Mosaic law. And effectively says it's been set aside. Now, parts of it have been reintroduced into a new law code, which we might call the law of Christ. Uh, and, uh, and so it's, it's not as though this, this Old Testament law can be just carved out and forgotten. It still has applicability. Uh, all scripture is useful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, but uh, there's a lot of disagreement as to what exactly we should do with the law. Should we carve it up and say this part stays, this part goes? And we'll, we'll talk about some of the options there. Some would disagree with dispensationalism's uh, distinctive view of the mission of the church. And really, I think this is really comes to, really to the heart of what dispensationalism is and why it is. Okay, Is the mission of the church the same as the mission of Israel? And it is the same as the mission of God. Okay, uh, and, that, and that's part of the question we're going to have to wrestle with. Uh, what is the church supposed to be doing, and is it the same thing that Israel was doing? Okay, and uh, we'll give a preliminary answer. No, not exactly. There's overlap, but uh, not identity. Part of the unpopularity of dispensationalism, though, is not substantive. That it's, it's not because of these things. Part of it is because of misunderstandings about the system, often because critics have failed to distinguish, I say here, what is foundational to the system and what is incidental and applicational for most or some dispensationalists. Okay, So across the years, there have been a lot of dispensationalists who have had a lot of goofy ideas. Okay, But just because one dispensationalist has had a goofy idea does not impugn the whole of the system. Okay, And so we're going to have to extract out and tease out what is important and central to the system and what is incidental or applicational to the system, uh, something that may not even be agreed by, by all uh, who claim the name dispensationalism. Okay, For instance, I'll say some things that I don't think dispensationalism is. First, I don't think it's just a division of history into historical periods, much less a specific number of these. Now, probably the leading number of these epochs or eras has been seven. Uh, but that's not a magic number. Don't imagine that seven is some sort of a magic number. Uh, we're not doing any biblical numerology here. Okay? Um, there, I think a good case can be made that there are seven. At the same time, if you've got six or eight, uh, we can be on the same page and still be dispensational. So it's not a specific number of epochs. Um, and it's not really primarily about the division of time, okay? It's, it's what we're going to call a division of administration. That is a way in which God is working with his people. Secondly, it's not a doctrine that teaches God is arbitrarily experimenting and perpetually failing in history to discover some elusive means by which he can succeed. That's sometimes thrown in the face of dispensationalism. Okay, the first, you know, the, the, 
the, the first arrangement didn't work. Adam sinned. Okay, so God's set scrambling. Okay, we've got to figure out something else. Let's, let's put something else in place. Well, that didn't work, and so there's a flood. Everybody's wiped out. We start over again. Uh, that didn't work, and so, mo- so, so Abraham is sort of selected in the midst of a, a, a great number of unbelieving people, and, and, and that worked for a little while, but really it, it, it really needed to coalesce into something a lot better, so the Mosaic system was, uh, was invented by God. Maybe this will work, but that fails, and so Jesus comes and ties him across. And, and, and so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, we have something of a, a fumbling, bumbling God who, who just is, is moving from plan to plan and nothing seems to work. Well, that's not what dispensationalism is. Uh, any, any dispensationalist worth his salt is going to say that everything was planned from the beginning. God has a particular unfolding of his program that was set in eternity past and uh, is unfolding exactly that way. Thirdly, it's not a pessimistic view of history and human culture. That's sometimes been uh, uh, an idea that's been out there. Dispensationalists don't trust culture. They think everything's always going badly within culture. They don't, and, and so it's got to end somehow with us escaping. Okay, and that's that's often uh, what you'll hear is sort of a a real a short version of what dispensationalism is. Uh, that's 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 not it. Uh, obviously, we do recognize that there is total depravity in culture, and and we we don't expect to see uh, society advancing. At the same time, the point is not that everything's going to end in failure and we're just going to, uh, just as everything's about to explode, we, we, we escape. Okay? It's not escapism. Okay? It's not a distinctive view of eschatology. Okay? As we're go- I, I don't know if we'll get to there tonight, uh, but certainly by next week we'll, we'll work through a really quick history of the movement. And, and one of the things I really like to sort of pound on is the fact that in the beginning, the opening days and decades of dispensationalism, eschatology wasn't really on the radar. Okay, that that wasn't the point. Okay, uh, we'll we'll get to what the uh, the point was. But eschatology, what quickly became an important implication of the system, but I don't think it's a centerpiece of the system as it sometimes has become in popular life. You know the. Uh, you know the Left Behind books and now movie uh, that's uh, come out. I don't know if you've you've seen that. Interesting. I've, I just saw it for the first time here about a, about a week ago. Uh, but uh, it, it and and certainly dispensationalism does point to a specific end for all of things. At the same time, that's not the centerpiece of what dispensationalism is all about. Most dispensationalists do, as uh, Bonnie said. Uh, early on here, the, most people, most dispensationalists do hold to a pre-tribulational rapture, a pre-millennial uh, return of Christ. At the same time, I don't think that that's again what's uh, that that that's the that's the the foundation block of what the system is. In fact, I've I've last couple of years I've taught this class at our seminary, and uh, because of snow days and such, we didn't get to the very last section, which is eschatology, and I don't really feel that we missed anything by not talking about eschatology, okay? It is, again, it's an, it, is, it is a pretty much a universal implication of the system, but it's, it's just that, as far as I'm concerned, is an implication. Important implication, but just an implication. Nor is it a particular view of sanctification. Um, 
when we look at the history again, we're going to find out that dispensationalism grew up together uh, with, a, with a style of sanctification sometimes called Keswick uh, theology. And those of you who were here the last time I taught in sanctification, you'll remember that, you'll remember that term, uh, a, 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 a method of sanctification where one is converted. I have used chocolate a long time. Uh, where, where, one is, where one is converted and effectively can flatline for a while, not making any advance in his Christian walk until a point of Christian consecration or surrender or dedication. There's a lot of different names for this. And then they start growing. Okay? Uh, so a lot of dispensationalists hold to this view of sanctification. But there's really nothing in the system that says you must believe in this system, uh, in this view of sanctification. In fact, um, I wouldn't hold to that. I, I hold what often is sometimes is often called the reformed view of sanctification. That you know, when you are saved, that's when growth basically starts immediately. Okay, this uh, you can find a diagram that looks a lot like this in uh, Charles Ryrie's Balancing the Christian Life. Uh, if you want to read up a little bit more on that. Uh, so it's not a particular system of, of sanctification, although a lot of dispensationalists have held to a Keswick or, or victorious life approach uh, to sanctification. Nor is it a non-orthodox view of the gospel, which is sort of, this is where it becomes really insidious when people become venomous uh, towards the, uh, uh, the uh, dispensational model. Dispensationalists do not believe in work salvation in the Old Testament uh, that was replaced by salvation by grace in the New. Uh, that is, if, if that has somehow penetrated into your thinking or you've heard it, let me put that to rest immediately. Uh, that's we. I, 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 I have the same view of of salvation as a, a reformed person. I, I really don't see there any need for there to be any difference in one's view of, of conversion, of salvation, in order, uh, to be a, uh, in order to be a dispensationalist. There are many uh, dispensationalists who are uh, either Arminian or uh, sort of four-point Calvinists, but there's some that are five-point Calvinists too. So uh, it's, it's not as though one of these is necessary in order to be a dispensationalist. So... That's what dispensationalism is not. We spent a little bit of time there because everybody comes in with pre, uh, presuppositions and assumptions about the system. And so if you came in with those, hopefully we'll, we'll say at least we'll, we'll rip up the soil a little bit. Uh, and uh, maybe you're not convinced yet, uh, but uh, at least we'll, we'll get that start here. So what is it? And so I've got a, a basic definition here. It's a way of reading the Bible. Or perhaps a way of theologizing, if you like the word. It's not a word, I guess, but I made it up. Uh, let's look at some of the options that are out there and see if we can't uh, put dispensationalism in a context of other systems like it. Okay. Um, by the way, you can... I, I, I know it typically doesn't happen the first night or the second night, but you can interrupt at any time and ask a question. I... I I, I welcome those because that tells me I don't understand and I can pinpoint what I'm doing wrong and hopefully get, get greater understanding. So I know everybody's always you know, a little bit 
hesitant the first night or second night or even the third night, uh, but hopefully we can sort of loosen things up here and ask questions uh, at will uh, throughout the, the course of the... Uh, Let me ask course. one then. Yes, absolutely. When was, when was dispensationalism first used in, in the context of theology? Um, we'll get to the history of that probably next week, okay. but 18, 1830s is when it really coalesces as a system. There's pieces of it that precede that, but probably the first systematic collocation of all the elements into a system comes in the 1830s. Good question. In fact, that's, that's part of some of the concern that people have about dispensationalism. It's not even 200 years old. And so how can we say this is the right way of looking at the Bible if for the first, you know, 1,800 years of the church, they didn't get it right. Well, we'll talk about some of those those objections and see if we can't uh, lay some of them to rest or at least keep them at bay. Okay? Good question, though. So let's, let's, let's get some working definitions out here. And I basically have four approaches. I said dispensationalism is one of several approaches to reading the Bible and seeing how it all fits together. So let's look at probably what are the four most prominent approaches within Protestantism, within evangelicalism. There are others, uh, but we'll, we'll leave it this for. In fact, in some ways you could almost look at this as a continuum. Okay, so there's, you know, there's a traditional dispensationalism all the way over on this edge, and then a, you know, a you know, a, a radical post-millennialism on the other end, and there's there's iterations all along the way. But let's at least find four posts along the way if we can, and see if uh, see if see what we can do with it. Dispensationalism first of the four is an approach to understanding the Bible in terms of the unfolding revelation of God, which results, I say here, in distinguishable stewardships of responsibility on the part of man. Okay, and that's really what a dispensation is. We'll, we'll get into definition of, of some some other terms along the way as we go here. Uh, but that's what a dispensation is. It's it's an administration. Probably the best illustration I can give you is the fact that we've got administrations in the U.S. government system, right? We've got the Reagan administration, and we've got the Clinton administration, and we've got the Bush administration, and the Obama administration. Okay. When you think about those, you're not really thinking in terms of, okay, yeah, 1980 to 1988. Uh, you know, you're, you're not really thinking of dates. I mean, we could put dates on those, and if we thought hard enough, we could probably do it. Um, it takes probably a few minutes. But, uh, but, but we recognize that the, co- the government ran differently under Reagan, differently under Clinton, differently under Bush, different, differently under Obama. And the point here is not to you know, persuade you that one is better than the other, except to say that there are four different ways and administrations whereby the country advanced or regressed or developed in certain directions and, 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 and not in others, okay? Same thing is true when we talk about dispensations or administrations of the scripture. Uh, in, in, and what we're going to see is that, okay, probably the two biggest Administrations are the administration of all with law, which governs most of the Old Testament, and and the, the administration of the church, which governs the most of the New Testament. Okay, G- 
God is operating a certain way with his people Israel. He has specific goals. He has specific ends. He has specific tasks for Israel to do. When we come here to the New Testament, he has different goals, tasks, instructions, uh, uh, different even law codes. Okay? So we have two different administrations about how God is saying, this is the way I want my universe run. This is a new way that I want my universe run. Okay? So, and so that really becomes what's visible here in dispensationalism, that there are multiple distinct administrations in the outworking of God's singular program. Okay? So it's an approach to understanding the Bible in terms of the unfolding revelation of God, which results in distinguishable stewardships of responsibility on the part of man. What am I supposed to do in view of the revelation that God has given me? The most visible feature of dispensationalism, if I can put it this way, is what I'll call the grammatical historical hermeneutic. don't want to use big words just to use them here, but it's hard to... It's hard to... Uh, hard to... Uh, Get, a, get away from using some, some of these terms. So I'll try and explain them. If I don't at any point, holler and say, hey, you're using those strange words again. What I mean by grammatical, historical, uh, hermeneutic is when we read the scriptures, we basically look at it for what its grammar says and what its historical context tells us. Okay? We don't try to force what the Old Testament says into the New Testament categories we have, or vice versa. Okay? We recognize that they are two separate administrations, and there may be differences between them two. Okay? And so we read the Bible. That's what hermeneutic is. Uh, Hermeneutic simply means to interpret. So it's a way of interpreting whereby we take, and sometimes you'll hear the word literal, literal, literal interpretation. We look at what it says, and we take the plain meaning, even though there might be distinctions here with what's what, ha- what is said in the Old Testament and what is said in the New. Okay, so it's a grammatical, historical, or literal hermeneutic or method of Bible study. However, dispensationalism is more than just that. It is a method for comprehensively understanding the whole flow of history and the unfolding design of our sovereign God for all of his creation. Okay? It's not a complete system of theology, about a system of, I say here, theologizing again. As, as such, it really has distinctive understandings of only a few doctrines. Okay? Like I said, um, you could open a, a dispensational systematic theology and a reformed systematic theology and find some of the chapters read pretty much the same. Other chapters would be considerably different. Okay, the uh, the chapters that would be considerably and consistently different would be these: ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church; eschatology, the doctrine of end times; and I think to a lesser extent, we'll talk about this: the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and His activity uh, relative to the two groups, Israel and the church. Okay, so that's my my real quick introduction, overview, survey of what dispensationalism is. Now, um, well, I'll ask, do you have questions on this up till now? I mean, obviously, we're going to say more about this, uh, but that's sort of our rudimentary description. What we're going to do now is sort of set it in contrast, or comparison in some cases, with two, three other systems of theology. Uh, maybe you've heard of them, maybe you haven't. 
Uh, the major one, the one that's oldest, the one that's been around the longest, is covenant theology, or sometimes called Reformed theology, sometimes called Federal theology, if that, that helps you. Uh, it's an approach to understanding the Bible in terms of a single covenant of redemption made within the Godhead before the creation of the world. Okay, so God, as his Trinitarian self, is talking and says, hey, I'd like to save some people. Okay, and they look at each other and say, uh, what are people? Okay, so we've got to, we have to create some people. And, well, they don't need to be saved. Okay, so there has to be some, uh, uh, in, you know, intrusion of sin in order for that to happen. So there's, there's this covenant made at the beginning. We're going to make a pact together as members of the Godhead to have a covenant with this group of people. Starts out, I say here, with a covenant of works. God says to Adam, the first man, he says, do this and live. Okay, Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, and then a few other elements that he's supposed to do as part of the uh, dominion mandate. If you do these things and don't do this one thing, you'll live. Okay, Of course, Adam fails, and so what immediately happens is a, 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 a secondary covenant comes into play, and that is a covenant of grace, okay? You talk to a, a you know, a dyed-in-the-wool covenant theologian, he said, well, there's really only one covenant, okay? And that covenant is effectively the covenant of works. Either we do it, the things that God tells us to do, or Christ does it for us, Okay, so it's a covenant of works either way, but in, it, once we get into the covenant of grace, we can't do anything to achieve it, and so it effectively looks like two covenants, a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. But technically, they're the same covenant. There's a covenant of works, which Adam failed to do, but that the second Adam succeeded in doing. Okay, So this covenant, this uh, the Latin word is fetus, so sometimes you hear federal theology, uh, simply the same thing. It's, it's, so Adam is the federal head, or the covenant head of the human race, and then this un, unalterable covenant of grace, where Christ, the second Adam, fulfills the terms of the covenant of works vicariously for his elect. This second covenant, this latter covenant, made initially between God and Adam, is renewed at various points in human history for the benefit of the elect of all time. So when we come to the various uh, nodal points, uh, the, you know, the, the, the uh, turning points of the scripture, and we come to, for instance, a, a covenant of Noah, and a covenant of Abraham, and a covenant of Moses, and a covenant of David, and a new covenant... These are not introducing new epochs, not introducing new administrations, but rather they are renewals of the single covenant of grace. And so there's a great deal of continuity uh, within the covenant system. Okay? So uh, for the covenant uh, theologian, uh, we look back at the law and we say most of that law still is in effect. Okay? The instructions for Israel are the instructions for the church. The instructions for the church must have been instructions for Israel, even though we perhaps don't see any indication of those things. Because there has to be continuity. There's one, there, there, there's one covenant that, uh, that rules it all. So I'm thinking of, uh, of uh, 
uh, Tolkien here. One ring to rule them over. Well, there's, there's, there's one covenant that rules them all. Okay? The centerpiece of covenant theology is the perpetuity of God's singular covenant demands and man's covenant commitments. And this continuity erases or at least minimizes as much as possible distinctions between Israel and the church. It suppresses development of theological themes between the covenants, uh, such as the changing role of the Mosaic Law, the growing content of faith, additional works of the Holy Spirit. Everything was the same. Holy Spirit did the same thing in the Old Testament as he does in the New. The law is the same for the Old Testament saint as it is for the New Testament saint. And, and on, on and on and on down the line, everything has continuity. Israel is the church, effectively. Now, here, here hopefully, uh, hopefully this isn't fire hose stuff here. Uh, might be getting even more complex here. But uh, tell me to slow down if I need to. Now, let me introduce a couple of terms here. Um, premillennialism post-millennialism, amillennialism, okay? These are basically basic systems of the end times, okay? Premillennialism says that we are going along uh, and Christ is going to come at some point and establish his kingdom, his millennial kingdom, okay? Now, there's also a pre-tribulational rapture that happens prior to this in some of those models, uh, but not in all, okay? So that's so that's pre-tribulation, uh, pre-millennial. So Christ comes before the kingdom. Okay. You've also got post-millennial. Got to remember how to use chalk on the chalkboard. I haven't done that in a long time. Okay. Uh, basically, says we're going along here, and effectively, the 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 kingdom started at the cross here. And it's been sort of growing all the way through here and reaches its culmination at the return of Christ. Okay, so we are effectively ushering in the kingdom. We are developing the kingdom. The kingdom is coming to, to full flower, even as, as we speak right now. There's also the amillennial system, which basically says, well, there really isn't any such thing as the kingdom except that there is a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of believers, okay? And so if there's anything that is the kingdom, its closest approximation basically is the church, okay? The church is the kingdom. And so don't imagine that the, the, the literal terms of the Old Testament of, you know, of, of, of deserts blossoming into flowers and all that, that that's, not, that's not going to happen. The kingdom is really in the hearts of people. And, and it, well, it shouldn't be a cross, it should be the end. Uh, and everything just sort of ends. So, yeah, it, it's it's funny. Dispensationalism is known for its charts. Okay, some of you are familiar with those. Amillennialism has the very simplest of all eschatological charts. It's a line, and then okay, that's the that's that's why they don't have many charts because it's it's such a simple system. Yes. Since the Bible is clear about Christ coming mm-hmm. and, and ruling and reigning on earth for a thousand years yeah. after. You know, you have Armageddon, you have what we call tribulation period. How can someone look at it and say, we're in it now, and then it, it, it's coming, Christ is going to come later? I don't understand that. I mean, you, that's a very complex question. Well, really a very simple question, very complex answer. Um, 
clear as you and, and I, and I agree with you, uh, would see it. Okay. Uh, they understand, for instance, uh, the book of Revelation to be detailing history rather than detailing future. So it really is a, uh, it is a it's sort of a, in a, a nutshell history of, 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 human, of, of the church history. And so, for instance, the seven churches are sometimes viewed as seven epochs of church history. And so all of this is unfolding now. We're in Revelation. We've been in Revelation from, you know, from the day Christ rose from the dead. And so, there, and, yeah, I mean, there's, there's dozens of verses here that we almost need to address to answer the question fully. Uh, but, that's, but that's sort of a basic answer. Not all would see it as quite as clear as, 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 as the future. As, as they're looking at the present, basically. Is that what you're saying? Uh, right. We the, revelation. And, and, and let, let, let me see if we see if we. Uh, I'll try and answer that question and tie it in with what we're trying to do. This works really well for dispensationalism because it says there's more than one people of God, or there's more than one in, uh, more than one in, uh, administration. There's Israel here. There's the church here. And so the millennial kingdom, which is basically a Jewish kingdom, is going to come back. It works really well for dispensationalism. So one, two, three administrations, one people group, another people group, a return to the first people group. Okay, so it works pretty well. But for the covenant theology, which we've said is what? Continuity at all costs. Everything's the same. They don't like this. Okay? It all has to be one people of God. And the idea of the church being removed and God's attentions returning to another people group, Israel, just doesn't resonate with them. Okay? It doesn't fit the system. Okay? And so, most of, through most of history, covenant theologians have been in either one of these two categories. Okay. Now, we're going to actually talk about some of the, uh, there, there are actually some who are in this category as well, but historically most have been in these two categories. Okay, does that answer your question? Okay. Okay. Okay, so that's, and that's the point we were trying to make here uh, in, in letter B. I basically said that. Now, there are some who would hold to a premillennial approach to eschatology, but most of these would deny that there is a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Because, again, they're saying, okay, yes, Christ is going to come to establish his kingdom, but it's not a Jewish kingdom, it's just a sort of a general kingdom. It doesn't have a distinctively Jewish flavor to it. It's just a kingdom of all of God's people, okay, without distinction. And so the idea of the church being raptured out and God's attention returning to a different group of people doesn't, doesn't fit. And so those who are premillennialists say there is no, there is no pre-tribulational rapture. There, there is perhaps something of a, you know, a rising of the church to sort of escort Jesus down, but that's, that's about the extent of the rapture. Okay, there's not a removal. So uh, they would uh, mock and laugh at... Uh, the, the left behind movie or books or, or, or such. Okay, they they would think it's ridiculous. Okay, does that make sense? So that's covenant theology. Now, over the years there have been in between positions 
that have developed. Um, like I say, it's something of a continuum, uh, but there's sort of two posts that have sort of come up. Um, if this is all too overwhelming for you, you can sort of tune out as we get the in-between positions here, but let's, let's do it anyway. Okay? Progressive dispensationalism is something, you know, closer, it, it is still dispensational, but closer to the covenant model. Okay, let me see if I can demonstrate this. It's an approach to understanding the Bible in terms of scriptural promises whose meanings and reference progress as history unfolds. That's why it's called progressive dispensationalism. So, for instance, a promise was made to Abraham that his seed would be as numerous as the sand and that he would receive a land and he would have a great future. Okay? As time progresses and the church is introduced, the church is effectively becoming an additional, if I can put it this, additional reference in that promise. So the promise was made to Abraham and will be fulfilled by Abraham and his literal children, but the promise expands. There, there, are, there are new people that are brought into the Abrahamic covenant. Us. Okay, maybe there's some Jews here, uh, uh, but uh, but for the most part, we're talking we're Gentiles. Okay, um, and so we are recipients of the Abrahamic promise, and the land that is promised to Israel is something that is also expanded and shared by us. Okay, so there's a it's a sort of an expansion and sharing as you go along. So you can see there's sort of features of the covenant system, there's this continuity, but it still maintains this idea that God makes a promise to Abraham and to Israel, it's fulfilled for Abraham and Israel and will be in the future. But it will also expand to include us as well. Okay? So, I say here, progressive dispensationalism's most visible feature is what they call, this is, this is the term they like to use, is a complementary hermeneutic. So when they read the Bible there is a completing or a complementing of the promise. The promise is made to Israel, but it is, it is, uh, it is uh, realized by not only Israel, but also the church. Okay? Which allows Scripture then to have, have a multiple senses. Senses plenty is a Latin term that sometimes you hear. A fuller meaning than was originally intended by the human author. So Moses didn't really have any idea that there was going to be this church idea but he wouldn't be bothered by it either because he's got a very magnanimous and expansive view of his promises Okay, I, and here's, here's how I've seen it uh, uh, we're going to come back to this illustration here but the illustration might be okay I've got two sons I say hey opening day I'm going to get tickets and, we're go and I'm, I tell, tell my oldest son John we're going to go down I was going to say Tiger Stadium Comeric Park and we're going to watch Tigers Great, great. And then, uh, when opening day comes up, I say, hey, John, David, get in the car. We're going to go watch the Tigers. And John would say, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> the promise was to me. And I said, well, sure, but it's not as though I'm dishonest or, or unfair to include your brother. Seems like you ought to be, you know, at least generous enough to allow him to come along. And, 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 and we, we would think ill of my oldest son if he uh, objected to David coming along. 
Okay, he might have some good reasons, but but for the <laughs> the fact is, and he would say, okay, that's okay, because I was more generous than the original promise. Okay, and so that's the argument that's going to be there. Now we're going to talk about some of the some of the flaws of that argument as we go along here. Uh, but for now, see that illustration here as something that they would point to as a as an illustration of what's going on. Okay, so progressive dispensationalism still maintains a lot of distinction between Israel and the Church, and it and is uniformly premillennial in its eschatology. But these facts are muted by what's sometimes called a realized eschatology. That is. The future is sort of bleeding into the present, okay? And so the, the kingdom that is for Israel is already being enjoyed and appreciated and in some sense realized uh, by the church today. So it allows participation of the church in promises that are specifically made to Israel. So that's progressive dispensationalism. Does that follow? These are... It's a lot of information here. Then, finally here, New Covenant Theology. It's also the new kid on the block. It's really something that's only been developing in the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, really started out of uh, Reformed Baptist life. Um, if, you, and let's, if you can think with me for a minute. There's something intrinsic to Baptist life that makes us at least tilt towards dispensationalism. What might it be? Anybody? I, mean, I might be too general in my question. Okay. What is different in the Old Testament and the New Testament that is very, very important to Baptists? It's in the name. Baptism. Okay, so baptism. In the Old Testament, there was no baptism. There was circumcision for men only, of course, and it was for everybody, whether you were a believer or not. In fact, it happened when you were eight days old, so it really had nothing to do with whether you were a believer or not. Okay, It was just every male child was brought into the Israelite community automatically by circumcision at eight, eight days old. Come to the New Testament, and we've got something completely different. You've got baptism by immersion, for everybody, not just men, but boys and girls, men and women, okay? And it only comes to people who are believers, right? Believers' baptism, sort of a bedrock of Baptists, you know, the Baptist, I mean, of all the Baptist distinctives, this is like the, the critical one here, uh, you know, a, a, a regenerate church membership. The only people who are brought into the church, the Baptist, through baptism, are people who are believers. Well, there's a pretty big disconnect between that and this, right? Okay. And so in Reformed life, there, there were a lot of those who, you know, traditionally held to covenant theology but said, wait a minute, there's, there's something amiss here. And so it, there's a Reformed Baptist review, uh, some figures like John Zenz, uh, Ernest Reisinger, who are you know very conservative Southern Baptists, said we've got to come up with some system that allows Baptists to stay pretty much covenant theologians without the baggage of the baptism circumcision problem. Okay, it's developed since then. In fact, it's it's sort of surging right now. Uh, 
names like D.A. Carson would come to mind, for instance. I don't know if you, you know the name. Uh, well-known uh, scholar, New Testament scholar, uh, and uh, many in his training who are following this idea of New Covenant theology that sort of takes care of some of these tensions within, you know, the raw uh, traditional covenant approach. Okay? So it's an approach to understanding the Bible in terms of a developing covenant motif that culminates in the establishment of a new covenant. New covenant theology is to covenant theology what progressive dispensationalism is to dispensation, a a move towards the center. This time, though, with greater fidelity to the principles of covenant theology. In new covenant theology... The Abrahamic or Mosaic covenants are shadows or types that anticipate the glorious arrival of the new covenant. So if progressive dispensationalism says these these covenants made with Abraham and Moses and David are expanding as time goes on, new covenant theology says these are just shadows pointing to a greater covenant. And so once the next covenant comes, this one sort of falls off. Okay, until we come to the New Covenant, as it is described in Jeremiah and starts to unfold in the New Testament. So all of the other covenants just sort of fall aside, fall, fall away. Okay? So all the promises, the, the intricate promises and the, and the details that say Israel gets this postage-sized piece of land and, and, and uh, they, they have this law and all that, these things all sort of fold away as something greater appears. And so... The, and so, for instance, there's a, there's a people that was limited in the Old Testament. Now there's a new people, and it's a fabulous new people of Jews and Gentiles and all sorts of people. There was a promise of a land here, which was basically this little piece of property uh, right along the Mediterranean. The land now is a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, And who could complain about that? So let's just... Set aside the idea of, of, uh, of Israel, the land being all that important. Say, this land is important, the new heaven and the new earth. And so all of these just sort of fade away into oblivion as time goes on. Okay, So that's basically what New Covenant theology says. Uh, so those are four basic systems. Okay, Questions, qualifications, thoughts? Yes. I believe under the progressive dispensation, but I'm, the question I have is, Wycliffe now is translating the Bible for uh, for Islam, for the Islamic people, and they're taking the word Israel out of the Bible and replacing it with the church. Some evangelists are upset about that. Yeah. And uh, what do you think about that? I, I would be upset about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize that that was the case. I, I, that does trouble me. Okay. Because I, I think it misplaces the uh, the, the unfolding of right of as God intended. Okay. And also, then under New Covenant theology, like the Seventh Day Adventists, mm-hmm. they believe in going to church on the Sabbath day. Right. They consider it Saturday, but that is only one part of the Mosaic Covenant. What do they do? Well, they, there is the blood covenant. We don't have to sacrifice bulls and goats anymore. Yeah. I mean, how how do they look at that? Typically, what they do is divide the law into three sections. Okay, there's a moral part, which says is basically all the things you would say. Okay, this is yeah, we all agree that this is morally right or wrong. 
Okay. There's also a civil part, which basically says how the country runs. And then there's the ceremonial part, which would be the, you know, the, the sacrifices and the priests and all that. Okay. They would argue that the ceremonial part has been done away with, and the civil part has been done away with, although there's sort of a sort of a question mark with the civil part, because parts of it, there's a question as to what's civil and what's moral. Um, and so there's, oftentimes you'll find disagreement between covenant theologians, what is the moral part and which is the civil part. And so they would understand that the command, the, the fourth command, uh, to observe the Sabbath day is because part of the Ten Commandments is part of the moral portion of the law. Others would disagree Others would say that that's part of that's part of something that is specific to Israel, and so there isn't that that one command no longer applies because it's part of a civil arrangement. So, so yeah, Seventh Day Adventists would say that that's part of the moral code that is preserved. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll talk. We have a whole section on the law, and we'll we'll try and parse some of those differences. Okay. Mark, you, you had uh, said some things about uh, about uh, the kingdom, and uh, it seems that uh, the kingdom in your mind is basically the millennial kingdom, the physical return, the physical yeah. political entity of political, although it's perfect, hard to think about, but I mean, a political and perfect and a human and human government out of Jerusalem during that thousand-year reign, okay? But there are references in the New Testament that indicate, and I'm not and I'm not a liberal, okay? And I don't see, you know, as was stated by you, as some have seen, the, you know, a bad view of the, the kingdom. Yeah. But they're like Colossians 1, were translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son right now. Okay? And in the last verse of Acts, Acts 28, the last verse, Paul talked about Christ and the kingdom. And I don't think Paul was talking about just the future, future millennial kingdom. He didn't talk about, just all the time talk about the future millennial kingdom. Okay. He was talking about the spiritual rule in the people's hearts, okay. it's basically the church right now, at this time. So, are you're not going to deny the spiritual aspect of the kingdom right now, are you? Well, okay, that really complex question, <laughs> and we're, we're going to get into all of this. Um, let me say for now a couple things. One, I'm not sure every single reference to the kingdom in the New Testament is exactly the same. Uh, like for instance, I think of Psalm ninety three one. For instance, God's kingdom rules over all. Okay, there is a sense in which God is the ruler of His universe all the time. He is the king of His king of the universe. Yeah. Okay, and so in that sense, yeah, we're in God's broad kingdom. We also talk about this kingdom here, the millennial kingdom, the full flower where Christ is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem ruling over echelons of people in which Judaism, the, the Jews are prominent, etc. Okay. The question then becomes what about these, those references? And um, if I can say for now, I'm not convinced 
and we'll go into the exegesis of every single one. So I, I, I promise that's coming. It's not going to happen immediately, okay. but it's coming in the course of the uh, in the in the course of the class. I'm not convinced that those amount to kingdom language in 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 either sense. Okay, so let's. I'll just I'll just put it there for now and promise you that I'll come back to it. I'm not going to. I'm not. I'm not putting you off. Although I I, I am putting you off. But, but, I'm, but I'm only putting you off temporarily. I will come back to this because okay. it, it does become an important question. So yes. Um, I basically hold to up David Wayne's position, which is Dr. McCain's position, which I think you may be familiar with. Okay. Okay. Which is. Which is that shell of life? There's, there's, there's basically two senses of kingdom. There's a broad kingdom where God rules over all, and that there is a millennial kingdom, and that all the references in the New Testament to kingdom can fit into either one of those two, and there is no spiritual form of the kingdom today. Okay. So I'll point you to, for now, to Dr. McKinnon's. Uh, a theology book or to Dr. McLean's theology book, but we'll we'll get to that. It's just we're just okay, so we're you're going to deal with Colossians one sometime. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Absolutely, it's in there. You can look ahead. It's there. <laughs> yes, ma'am. How do how do post millennial uh, people deal with the fact that if I mean if we are in you know the kingdom now. How do you explain the gross sin that's still happening? Extremely good question. And in fact, post-millennialism really starts to take off around 1700. Prior to that time, amillennialism is sort of the, the dominant position of the church from about the 4th century to the 16th century. Um, the era of where Roman Catholicism is sort of indominant. It is dominant. Starting around 1700, uh, a little bit before that, a few decades before, this idea of post-millennialism begins. And it, and it, it comes along with uh, enlightenment, uh, and then later on to the Industrial Revolution. It, it, it appeared as though mankind was making incredible advances, particularly in the, in the realm of medicine, you know, we, we read about the kingdom going to be free of, of disease and, and look at the advances that people are making yeah, in medicine. The humanist and, movement just yes. seems to have just and, that apart. Yeah, and, and, and what happened was post-millennialism <coughs> died almost overnight. Anybody say when? World War I. <coughs> World War I. Which is even, I, I would say, I, I know we're standing here on the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, but I still look at World War One as, as perhaps the zenith of evil coming together. We had we had ancient we had we had we had, we had old warfare techniques and modern warfare machines, and we had you know people marching across fields to face machine guns that were mowing down every single one of them. Uh, there was there was the uh, there was the uh, the gas warfare that was just rampant and, and and it was it was a horrific period and and basically overnight World War Two uh, uh, post millennialism dies okay it's only recently been able to get some traction and to come back alive again uh, you, perhaps you've heard of Christian reconstructionism or theonomy 
as, as expressions of post-millennialism, where there is this, this idea that, you know, all that aside, we're still making progress. So you, you make a very good point, and historically, um, the world has heard you <laughs> that those arguments have been strong. Okay. Another question? Okay. Well, we got through two pages. <laughs> we're supposed to do five a night. <laughs> so so, so uh, we're going to have to accelerate. But, uh, but this, this is foundational stuff, and, I, and we really need to make sure that we're, we're, we're on the same page, talking, using the same terms the same way. And so hopefully we can uh, accelerate a little bit uh, in the next, uh, next couple of weeks. Next week will be a lot of history, uh, which I really enjoy, but it goes pretty fast. Is there okay. like a, a, a book or a resource that I can go to just to yeah. read about the church a little bit more? Sure. Um, in fact, uh, we were supposed to get there tonight. Selected Bibliography on page four. Um, if I could uh, point out some some helpful ones. Charles Ryrie's Dispensationalism, I think, is still probably the go-to source for understanding what dispensationalism is. Another one here, Rennie Showers, There Really Is a Difference. Um, it, it's... I'm not sure I would say it's, it's, it's quite as good as Ryrie, but it co- puts the cookies low, and it actually makes, makes some of these distinctions very clear. Uh, so that, that one might be a, a helpful one to you. Um, also uh, on there, Michael Vlock's Dispensationalism is a, is a nice, uh, much a more current uh, uh, you know, a, a look a survey of the basic tenets of what Dispensationalism is. Those three, I would say would be helpful for you. Okay. Well, our time is exhausted. Uh, I, we'll, we'll find out how many come back next week. <laughs> so uh, hopefully it'll get a little bit more, uh, uh, more uh, understandable as we go. Okay.